This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's fantastic to be here this evening. Thanks for joining. We're going to be talking a bit about um, the science really behind social connections as we get older, but a little bit touching on what happens in the younger years as well. So the main things we're going to talk about are what do we actually mean when we use the terms loneliness and isolation? And then we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about how does loneliness actually affect our health and does it? We'll talk about a framework for how we maintain connections and how we can address loneliness. So let's start a little bit with understanding our health risks. So I want to think of, have you think about either yourself or think about if you were seeing or if you knew someone who was an 80-year-old woman who had been having these following medical issues. She's had recent falls. She's also concerned about her finances because she's retired and the income she's getting is not as much as she used to. She's taking multiple medications or what we as, as clinicians call polypharmacy. She also lives alone. She also has hypertension or high blood pressure. She smokes, and it turns out she hasn't seen a doctor in 15 years, which may or may not be a good thing, depending. So if you were her health care provider, so since this is mini medical school, we need to have you start thinking about what it would be like to, or maybe some of you are doctors, what would you focus on? Would you focus on the fact that she's living alone? Would you focus on the fact that she may have some financial insecurity? Would you focus on her high blood pressure, her multiple medications, her falls, or her smoking? It may be that you have to address all of these. The question is, is in what order and what priority should they take? So let's think about falls. So the risk alone from falls, we know that every 19 minutes, someone over the age of 65 dies from a fall. And one in four adults falls each year. So for geriatricians, this is actually something that's incredibly important. So when I see patients, they say, well, I'm very healthy, but they've had a fall, and I have to really focus on those falls. So how about hypertension? So more than 60% of people over the age 60 have hypertension, and what's been happening this year is that the guidelines for blood pressure are changing every year. So one year they tell us it's okay to be higher, the next year it's to be lower, and we're like, what are we supposed to do? So it's constantly changing, but we know it has health effects. And the death rates are over 14 per 1,000 people just from hypertension. So this is causing this woman some health risks as well. And now the question, is there actually a risk to living alone? And we're going to talk about that a little bit. And also, is the risk of living alone different than the risk of being disconnected? So if this woman is alone and if she's disconnected, what would you actually recommend? If you're her friend, if you're her neighbor, if it's you, what are you recommending to yourself? And as a healthcare provider, as a social worker, what are we recommending? Hey, look at that. What is disconnection? I planted him in the audience. So... So disconnection, so this is an interesting term, which I've started using recently out of some work that my colleague Julianne Holt-Lundstedt does, and it really is an aggregate term that encompasses a lot of different things. So it can encompass what we loneliness, 
isolation and then the reverse of these, which is social connection. So it's kind of putting everything together in one in one box. And we'll talk about each one of these in, in series. So what do we mean by loneliness? So loneliness is actually the subjective feeling of being alone. So it is also something that is distressful. And this is something to take in mind because some people say, well, I'm alone and that's okay. Well, that's different from loneliness because loneliness is actually an internal feeling that doesn't feel good. And most of us probably at some point in our lives have felt some degree of loneliness. But for some, it persists. For some people, it comes and goes. For other people, it could be the loss of a spouse, the change in jobs, or other things that causes these feelings to come up. Social isolation, in contrast, is something that's more quantifiable. So it's about the numbers of relationships or the types of relationships. It could be as much as having a near or near-complete loss of contact with society. So it could mean different things for different people. So for someone, it could be, and this is where it gets a little tricky, so isolation could be not seeing anyone. It could be seeing a few people. So there's some variability here. The difference between social isolation and loneliness is that social isolation by itself does not account for the distress that a person can subjectively feel. So what are the myths around loneliness? So many people, unfortunately, believe that this is a normal part of aging. And you see this, unfortunately, amongst younger people. They say, oh, it's an old person. They're lonely. It's okay. It's not. It is not a normal part of aging. There may be things that happen to us as we get older that may put us at risk, but it doesn't mean that it's normal. The other myth is that it's the same thing as depression. So many people think, oh, lonely, it's because they're depressed. And that's also not true. It can be that you are depressed and lonely, but it can also be that you're lonely without being depressed. The other assumption is that people think that you can't be lonely if you live with other people. And we know from research, and we'll present some of that, that that's not true either. You can be married, you can be living with other people, and still feel some loneliness. And then the other assumption is that you just have to join a social group and everything will be fine. And that also is a myth. It may work for some people, but it's not a guarantee. What's important about all this is that we're gaining national and international reputation or understanding that loneliness and isolation are actually huge public health problems. And the World Health Organization is actually realizing, like, hey, we need to stop and actually focus on the fact that we are losing connections, and this social isolation and loneliness is affecting people across the globe, and of all ages, actually. So the question for all of us is, could there be cases of loneliness or isolation in our community that we're not aware of, that are affecting our health. So here in San Francisco, where I live, we have the highest proportion of seniors and adults with disability out of any urban area in the state. We also know that about 20% of people are living alone here in San Francisco. And we also are a city that is diverse and full of many immigrants, which also creates some challenges for different groups in terms of feeling connected. Another group that we know here in San Francisco also is the LGBT community, which has higher rates of loneliness and isolation and has particular risks. So what are we doing to identify and to help support the different types of people living in our community? So how do we actually identify loneliness? So we talked about that it is something that is subjective. So there's actually a really simple screening tool out of UCLA that is called the three-item loneliness scale. This comes from a really large study um, and it actually breaks it down to three questions. And the questions are, do you feel left out? Do you feel isolated? And do you lack companionship? 
And these range in answers from, I I hardly ever feel this way, or, you know, I may feel this way sometimes, or I'm feeling this way often. And the higher the score, so often with a score of three, if you're saying I'm often feeling left out, isolated, and without companionship, that actually indicates pretty significant loneliness. For social isolation, in contrast, when we're looking at the number of relationships we have, we really don't have what's called a gold standard, the one test, the one screening tool to really define these are the number of friends or relationships you need to have to not be isolated. There's a lot of different scales and measurement tools. Um, Some of them are listed here below. And the reason why this is important, saying that there's no gold standard, is in the literature and in the research looking at loneliness and isolation, there's a lot of variability. And what you'll see is that um, some studies have conflicting results and, or similar results, and it's because of the tools that they're using to diagnose this or to, not to diagnose, but to recognize what social isolation and loneliness is. So there's also something, getting to this idea of disconnection or overall connections, there's also an idea that we need to look at this in a composite way, meaning that we need to look at structural factors. So what are the things in the environment that promote connections? Functional types of connections. So what are the types of relationships and what's the quality of relationships as well? So when we are measuring or trying to understand more about loneliness and isolation, it's important to know what is actually going on because when we then think about it, and we'll get into this a little bit from a public health perspective or healthcare perspective, how we try to solve some of these problems depends on what resources are in our communities and how we're defining the problem. So why else does this matter in terms of how we're defining things? Again, in healthcare environments, we have many different tools to understand what's going on with our patients. So to look at if someone is anxious, we have something called the GAD-7, which is seven-question scale. For depression, we have something called a PHQ-9. For alcohol use, we have something called the audit. So there's different tools. And so from a public health perspective, we need a very good tool that can help really make sure we are measuring and looking at what we are trying to look at and have it be concise. So I think all of us go to the doctor, or maybe sometimes do, and we get asked lots of things. It can be really tiring to get asked questions all the time. And as clinicians, it can sometimes be hard to be asking constant questions as well. But we're trying to get the best information possible to understand what's going on. So ultimately, how does loneliness affect health? So I want to talk about a study that um, I conducted now several years ago, but there's been several more studies which we'll go into in depth. But this is a study that we did, and this is a complicated slide that I will walk through. Um, But what I was interested in, so I'm a geriatrician who specializes in caring um, caring for people as they get older, and I was really interested in understanding what helps people maintain their independence, what helps people stay out of nursing homes if that's their goal. And I started looking into loneliness and realizing this is something we don't talk about in healthcare and something that's very ignored. So I I studied um, over 1,500 people, and we looked at people um, of all different uh, ages over age 60, different ethnicities and different socioeconomic statuses. And what we found, there's a couple things here that I want to point out, is that um, 62% of people who reported feeling lonely were actually married. Okay, So this tells you again about some of our myths that it's not just that if you're married, you're fine. Now, marriage can be protective, 
But it's not a guarantee that if you're married, everything's going to be all fine. And we won't ask for a range of hands, or I won't ask my husband to tell, tell you if everything's fine and if he's never lonely. But um, this is an interesting thing for us to pay attention to a little bit. The other thing I will point out is that only 26% of people who were lonely were actually living alone. So similarly, they are different things. You probably, some of you may live alone yourselves and be okay, and there are other people who live alone who have extreme feelings of loneliness. So what is that that is contributing there? So what we found in our study was that for people who reported feeling lonely, there was a 59% increased risk of losing their independence, and this is as measured by activities of daily living, which is dressing yourself, bathing yourself, getting to the bathroom, feeding yourself. So 59% increased risk of losing that ability to do those things independently if you reported feeling lonely with those three questions. The other thing we found is that there's a 45% increased risk of dying in people who reported feeling alone, feeling lonely. Okay. So not insignificant, actually. So what we found in this study was that loneliness is very common in older adults over age 60. It is an independent predictor of decline, of loss of independence, and it is also an independent predictor of death. And what we mean by independent predictor is that when you're conducting research, what you need to try to do is make sure that what you're studying and, the, and what you're trying to look at are related and that there's nothing else that's contributing, meaning this is not explained by smoking or by heart problems or by, or by low, um, I was worried that was my phone, but it doesn't sound like mine, so, or, or that it's not explained by low socioeconomic status. So this is by itself that this is a predictor. So ultimately, what we think, the way this happens, and this is a huge area of research, this is not my area of research, but I have several colleagues around the country working on this, but we think that loneliness essentially is causing this wear and tear on our body. It's this constant stress on our body that is causing physiological changes that is, are breaking things down and ultimately leading to death or loss of independence. There are other things going on to highlight some of the other research we know that living, this is an interesting one, looking specifically at living alone and its effect on cardiovascular health. One of the more recent ones in 2015 actually showed that loneliness is associated with frailty, and frailty being a syndrome of something that's related to the loss of muscle mass and ultimately can lead to disability. And then something that is a big importance to many of my, my patients um, and community members is that all of us want to maintain our mind as much as we can and try to stay of sound mind. And we know that there are new studies specifically linking loneliness to Alzheimer's and actually demonstrated by looking at special types of MRIs that show that in people who feel lonely, there may be higher burden of amyloid, which is a protein we see in people with Alzheimer's. So this is real stuff going on that has not been looked at for a long time. Now the reverse, what's very interesting, so we've talked about the negative consequences of loneliness. Now my colleague, Julianne Holt-Lundstadt, who works in Utah, says that there's actually quite a bit of evidence looking that if you actually have 
positive connections and you're not lonely and you are connected, there's actually a decreased risk of all-cause mortality, all the different things that, that can increase your risk of dying, and as well as reduce your risk of the effects of certain illnesses. So that's what's very interesting, too. So we see if you're lonely and lacking in connections, you have higher risks of death and higher risks of medical problems and loss of independence. But if you're connected and doing things actively to maintain your connections, you can actually help reduce your risk of dying and of losing your independence. This is also a complicated slide, but what I'll show you here is that there's a, this is about looking at the different types of things we focus on in the healthcare world. So we have social connections, which we don't talk about. But if you look down here, if you think about when you go to the doctor, Everyone talks about physical activity. So are you exercising? What is your weight? Are you overweight? And then air pollution, and then they're smoking uh, in a couple other places. Well, here what we find, what this is showing is that actually the effects on our health of connections is actually much stronger than the connections we find with some of the typical things we focus on healthcare. So in the doctor's office, we're often focused on, again, on high blood pressure and smoking and exercise, yet meanwhile, we're ignoring this big part of our lives, which is social connection that actually affects our health and our well-being quite a bit. So ultimately, what this means is that by having social connections, this actually has health protection as well. So the bottom line is that loneliness and isolation, when you compare the risk, is as dangerous to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Okay, so that is the magnitude of how this actually affects our life and our health. So, and I think the reason why this quote has received so much attention because it's, you know, everyone thinks smoking is like the worst thing, but no one's talked about the fact that isolation and loneliness is actually incredibly problematic, and we're not talking about it. So, given what we know, are we missing ways that we could be helping ourselves and each other to prevent um, our loss of independence? So what does this mean for the healthcare community? So we're in a really interesting time right now in healthcare in that we are attempting to provide healthcare that is lower in cost because we know that in the United States we're spending more money than most countries and not seeing the health outcomes. We are trying to focus on the health of population, so what are we doing at a population level? And we're actually also trying to provide higher quality of care and understanding what that means. So really what this means and what there's more and more literature showing is that this topic of loneliness and isolation actually helps us refocus and realize that we need to actually focus on the social determinants of health, which are the things that actually matter to people, which is connections. How am I living out in my community? What is available to me and how do I stay independent? So there's a model by one of my colleagues that thinks about, you know, if we were to look at this from a public health perspective. From a public health perspective, we always try to think about, can we prevent the onset of illness? If the illness is set in, can we prevent its complications? And so that is partly why what this pyramid says is, like, this at the risk of isolation is saying this is primary prevention. So how can we even start to identify people who are at risk and try to avoid people losing those connections or feeling lonely and isolated. And then the second step, which is secondary prevention, is thinking about once someone is starting to feel isolated, is there something that we can do to prevent it from getting worse? And then lastly, what do we do for people who are already incredibly isolated or lonely? What is the intervention there? A way to think about this also is, and this is from um, John Cacioppo in part, 
who says, loneliness is really like a warning sign. It is a warning sign that is telling us, because we are human creatures, we are meant to be part of groups, it is telling us, if you're feeling lonely, (laughs) hey, I need to find my group, and I need to reconnect with others. You know, another thing that my colleague Julianne says is, we are tracking our lives in so many ways. I'm counting my steps. I'm, you know figuring out what I'm eating, I'm counting how many hours I'm spending on the commuter, but we're really not doing anything to keep track of our connections. But I'll tell you personally, my husband and I were recently talking about how we're spending so much time working, and I had to make a very conscious effort to, I have friends in Berkeley and it seems so far to cross the bridge, and I thought, I need to actually go and spend time with my friends, and I thought, I can't be lecturing and researching on loneliness and isolation and not doing things myself because I'm still young, I think, and so how do I protect myself and build my quote-unquote social capital so as I get older I haven't lost that ability to connect with other people. So this is a real thing that even I experience. And it's also then thinking, like, what are the things that can drive someone to feel lonely? So it could be there's personal circumstances, so something that's going on in your life. You've lost a spouse. You've lost a close friend. Environmental, it could be here in San Francisco. We have people who um, have lots of stairs and can't get out of their home because of that. Um, There's life events and traumas that happen. And then the other part of this is what's going on internally within us. So do I have a personality that makes it harder for me to connect with other people? Has that been a lifelong trait, or is that something that has developed over time that I'm becoming more isolated? And I think that's something when I looked at myself, is I thought, what am I doing that I'm actually not engaging with other people? I'm like, ah, I don't want to talk to people, and I've had to really look within and say, why am I doing that? And then it's also thinking about, do I want to be, what is how I define myself, and am I a part of a special group, and I don't know how to interact with people outside of that group? So what is going on? So again, from the public health perspective, when we think about this, it's really thinking that as we look at loneliness and isolation, what we're actually talking about is focusing on the social determinants of health. The challenge, of course, is that especially these days where we're focusing so much more on technology, is that our social and emotional influences or what are going on aren't easily shown up on x-rays. And so this is hard for a clinician. You know, clinicians want to have an easy answer of like, oh, I see it on the x-ray, this is what I'm going to do. For isolation and loneliness, it's not that easy. It's complicated to talk about. It can be embarrassing for people to talk about it with their clinician. And then there's still the fear and the question of like, great, now I know about it, but what am I going to do? So... What I want to focus also on is that the costs of loneliness and isolation are actually pretty significant. And as again, as we think about the triple aim and that we're trying to provide health care in a economically feasible way that gives us health outcomes, we have to think about what's going on. And there was a study that was just done, a combination with AARP and Stanford that showed that social isolation, and they used a measure of social isolation with some loneliness, actually increases Medicare costs by at least $6.7 billion every year, at least. And this is, again, controlling for all the other risk factors that we see that affect health care costs. We also see that if you compare the cost of social isolation with other chronic conditions, they're just as costly. So there's a lot of talk often, for example, in the primary care world that arthritis and people coming to the doctor's office for back pain or knee pain is very costly. Well, here, $134 per patient, this is what it's costing these costs. 
So, and not that much different from high blood pressure, which is receiving a lot of public health attention. So why is it that if we have something that is affecting our lives and, and increasing costs and affecting our abilities to live independently that we're not focused on it? So ultimately, I think this is also about what is the messaging that's going on in the public, in the media, and by our healthcare practitioners and providers. So similarly to what I described in terms of loneliness being a warning sign, it's thinking that loneliness can be similar to hunger and thirst. It is something that we cannot ignore that is affecting us. Um, in the Harvard Business Review, Vivek Murthy, our firm, former Surgeon General, actually wrote this fascinating piece on work and the loneliness in epidemic and a couple things going on here that many of us are spending too much time on computers. Many people are telecommuting and so therefore don't even interact with people in the office anymore because they're working from home. So what does this mean to even younger generations um, or people who are still working? It used to be that our work environment was also our social circles, but now that seems to be evaporating too, which is a little scary, frankly. Now, this is some research done by, um, and I, I, I forgot the name of the woman, unfortunately, at the moment, but she's a researcher, I believe, out of UC San Diego, and she published this paper actually looking at younger adults. So this is the number of times per week teenagers go out with their parents. And we see this line here is when the iPhone came out. And these are 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. And when you see after the iPhone comes out, there's a huge drop in how much teenagers are going out. Another slide looking at, again, the year the iPhone came out and teenagers at responding to questions about how often they feel left out and feeling lonely. So what is going on here? And it's not, this isn't meant to say that we should poo-poo all technology, but it's about how are we using technology and are we using technology as a replacement for relationships and connections that actually matter? What the US Surgeon General said again is that we have to remember that social isolation is as bad as smoking. And these are the types of public campaigns and messaging that are trying to get the word out about we cannot keep ignoring this. So what can we do now? So part of it is assessing risk. So I love this quote. If you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. And I think this is really about what longevity and thinking about how to maintain an active and independent lifestyle is who is in our network to help support us. So it means returning to this spectrum of vulnerability and spectrum of risk. So am I at risk for isolation? So I would put myself in this category that I've been at risk because I'm overworking and not connecting. And so I have to think about what are the things that I can do in my life so that I can avoid a place where I'm already disconnected and lonely or where I get to a place where I'm too lonely and isolated. So the challenge, I think, one of the reasons why it hasn't been talked about in the healthcare literature or in healthcare, um, in the healthcare space, is that it's really complex. And as I mentioned, unfortunately, sometimes in healthcare we want easy answers, and it's very hard. And so the way we think about how we address this problem is thinking about: Does someone need to improve their social skills? So for me, do I need to improve my social skills? I need to ask myself. Do I need to enhance my social support? Well, I think I have good social support. I'm just not, um, I'm not actually accessing it. So does it mean I need to increase opportunities for social interactions? And for me, that's probably the case, that I have the opportunities. I'm just not actually taking them up. 
or this addressing maladaptive social cognition, which means for me, I might say, well, you know, my friends don't like me, they're going to reject me, and so I don't want to even put myself in that situation. And so I have all these thoughts that are kind of self-defeating, so I never even try to put myself in that situation because I'm too afraid. So that means if I have that, I have to think about, well, why do I think my friends don't like me? What could be going on that's making me feel that way so that makes me not interact? So using this framework for how we may address loneliness, we can think about the types of interventions we look at. So the first one is talking about loneliness. So part of being here tonight is actually bringing this issue to light and having a space to talk about it. And just by talking about it can actually improve our social skills. It can actually improve our opportunities for social interaction and may actually address this maladaptive cognition. And what I mean by this is that I was a part of a support group um, one day for patients in my clinic, and we talked about loneliness. And one of the you know, women in the group, at the end of it, after being quiet the whole time, said, you know, I'm really lonely and I've never said it out loud. And it was a huge moment just to be able to admit it and to then other people saying, you know, I am too. And that was just incredibly powerful to realize, you know, we may not be alone in those feelings. And just to start talking about it and admit it, is a, it was one step forward. The second part is also thinking about, so once we have awareness, how do we create outreach and how do we have an impact? So AARP is actually a huge proponent of talking about loneliness and isolation and coming up with solutions. So they have a whole public health campaign and a website called Connect to Effect, which actually has some resources on what may be available in your community and how to start to think about if you're isolating or feeling lonely and how to address that. The other thing that's interesting when we think about how do we talk about loneliness and how can we impact is should we be thinking big? Should we be thinking about, you know, Medicare is the insurer for the majority of people over 65 in this country, so should this be something that is required for Medicare to look at? given the wide health care risks. Now, there's some pluses and cons to that, and the pluses are it means that we're paying attention to it. The cons are that Medicare requirements and doing things very specifically can be very burdensome, both to patients and to providers. So when I get the list of things I need to cover in a visit, it sometimes detracts from me actually wanting to focus on my patient and not having to fill out checkboxes. So those are the things we're grappling with. At the same time, we can't ignore it. So how do we create a system to make this an integrated part of our healthcare systems? So then we think about what about, some of this is at the local level, what can be happening internationally? So in the United Kingdom, there's actually an entire campaign called the Campaign to End Loneliness. And this is about raising public awareness. And they have a huge amount of programs related to this, and something I'll talk about in a little bit called the Silver Line. And if you haven't heard about this already, the United Kingdom went as far as actually appointing a Minister of Loneliness. And this was because they were realizing, much like we did, that this is a huge public health problem that is affecting many people and affecting people's lives in a negative way. And we actually need a concerted effort to try to address this. This does not mean, and I think there's... Um, this does not mean that we're calling loneliness and isolation a disease. That's not what this means, because unfortunately there's been some bad media press and saying like, oh, doctors just want to make everything into a disease, and that's not that. It's realizing that some of our experiences actually affect our health in ways that we're not aware of and that the healthcare system isn't paying attention to. 
So ultimately also when we talk about loneliness, and this is where it can be tricky when we talk about um, opening a conversation, you have to be prepared for the answer. So what if you go home and you ask your neighbor, if you ask your spouse, are you feeling lonely? Are you ready to hear that? And that can be hard. And are you ready to think through like what can be done? Or is it just a listening? And I would say that sometimes it really is just about listening. In a questionnaire we did with some faculty or some healthcare providers, they said, well, I can't ask about loneliness. I need training. So the question, is that true? How do we train people to address loneliness? And is that something that's needed? Again, this is something that we're seeing um, internationally. There was this um, fascinating and really sad story um, in the New York Times talking about um, older women in Japan dying alone at home with no one around them. And there's a story about a woman who literally had a mechanism with her neighbor on closing and opening the window. And if she didn't open the window in the morning, her neighbor would know that she had died. And that is the extent of things that we're seeing in terms of people living and dying alone with no one to reach out to. Some of the solutions, and I'm going to let Amber talk a little bit about more, more things ahead, but there's some really interesting movements thinking about what are creative solutions that might be available to some of us so from telephone support. So in the United Kingdom, again, they established a national hotline to address loneliness, and it actually has two components. You can call it 24 hours a day, seven days a week and have someone answer the phone. And this actually creates a program where it can be random or it can be that, you know, I call Mrs. Scott every Wednesday at this time and there's a special connection and bond that's made. Okay. There's a similar program in L.A. called um, At the Motion Picture and Television Fund, which is connecting people who have worked in the movie industry of all types, so not just actors, but people that worked as you know, musicians or as lighting specialists. And this is another way to help people connect with similar interests and to help people not feel lonely. Now, some of the people using these services actually don't identify as being lonely. They're offered this, and then it turns out they've actually realized that it's increasing their connections and help giving them more meaning to their lives. So the next thing is really, again, thinking about um, what does it take to involve the healthcare community? And we know that there is evidence to how loneliness and isolation affect our health and how connections positively affect our health. What we don't know is how we translate some of these programs that exist to target isolation and loneliness into something that's actionable. So many of our existing programs around the country don't have firm research behind them. We're trying to work on that so we can say, right, and Amber will talk about this, my program works and this is why, so that then as a clinician, I can then tell my patients, hi, Ms. Smith, let's talk about your loneliness, let's talk about why you're lonely and what might work for you, and I can actually essentially write a prescription. So it could be for my patient that I say, actually, I really want you to focus on connection. And it may be different for each person. So it may be for Ms. Smith that she's going to reach out to her neighbor next week and have lunch, and she's going to come back and tell me how that was. And it could be, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit here about forgetting about your diabetes and blood pressure, but it may actually be that by focusing on the connections, we're actually inadvertently improving our hypertension and our diabetes. And there's a really fascinating group working um, 
in the peninsula right now that has shown that in a health plan group of members, when they have formed groups of connections, they're seeing incredible rates of their blood pressure and diabetes management improving just by finding these connections. The next thing is thinking about what's in our community, what is around us that can be helping us. So it's about expanding our circles. So could it be that our circle has gotten smaller as we get older and we need to think about what other opportunities we have to engage? So Connect to Effect, again, this website may tell you what's in your community. Um, and it's also thinking about how can you either make new connections or reinforce existing ones, because it's going to be different for different people. So a couple things here in the city, and I have I apologize to Amber that I have an old picture of the old program, but she's shared with you the new ones, which is um, what are the different opportunities in our, in, in our city to enhance connections? But what's important for me to, to mention here is that it's going to be different for any one of us. So for some of us, taking part of classes may be really helpful, forming connections. For other people, what may be really meaningful is actually going on trips and traveling, if that's available to you. Some people, I have someone who I care, take care of who loves traveling, and that is what gives them new meaning. By going with his wife and also meeting new people during trips, that is a huge way that he connects and is keeping him healthy and active. And what's interesting is that he wants to stay motivated to actually travel, so that helps him stay physically fit. So you can kind of then start to understand, wow, he's actually reinforcing connections but increasing his physical fitness, and that's probably why he's helping his health. The other thing, again, like looking at some of you here, so it could be that actually attending classes, and we just know certainly around the city there's different things from Mini Medical School to the Fromm Institute, and these are different ways that people maintain their connections and their way to connections or to information. It could also be that many of you or some of you are involved in support groups. So could it be that being a part of support group, and I have some colleagues here from, from India who um, have great experience on what it means to have a support group and to provide that, that camaraderie to their colleagues. So thinking about yourselves, so it's who is in your web of relationships. So if this is me, I think about this circle of working is probably too big, my family is far away, so that means that on a day-to-day -day basis, it's a little bit harder. My cognitive and emotional state probably depends on how tired I am and how much work I have. Spiritually, um, if that's important to me, how, what, part of, what does that play in my life? What's going on with my friends? And are there other interests that I have or haven't developed or have been ignoring that could be actually helping me connect? Or is it that... Some things you need more help in. Could there be other areas that you could connect? Is there something new that you say, I wanted to play basketball and I never got a chance to play basketball, and now is my turn? You know, what is it that you could be adding to your life? Is it that you no longer drive and that's a problem, so do we need to think about other ways of transportation? Could it be that pets are the answer for some of us? And that's certainly a, an interesting thing. And then again, for spirituality, for some people, it could either be that this is a helpful thing or someone has lost contact with their spirituality and they need to reconnect, and that's a way to reconnect and find meaning. The use of technology is really interesting. Again, I showed you those slides about when the iPhone came out and how that really increased rates of loneliness amongst younger people, and I think we see that in older adults as well. Um, what's interesting is that there's, there's a couple different things out there. So um, 
there's a there's a program or a tablet for older adults called GramPad. And for full disclosure, we are actually studying this in my clinic right now as a way to help some of our adults connect. And for the first time, we actually think we helped one of our patients not go to the emergency room in a positive way. This is someone who um, was really going off and really out of anxiety and loneliness. And what we found by using the gram pad and actually talking personally I mean, she really called the other day and said, I need to go to the hospital. We started chatting. By the end of that conversation, she's like, you know, I'm okay. I don't need to go. And so is that a positive way to use, use technology? And I think it was something, it was, it was more than just being on the phone because we saw each other. And she's like, hey, it's nice to see you. And it was a really neat thing. I couldn't actually go to her house that day, but I was able to connect with her. And she could see that she wasn't alone suffering that day. There's also something else that is um, not exactly technology, but an interesting thing. It's a young woman here in, in San Francisco who has started um, this program called My Life, My Stories, where she meets with older adults, and any of us, any of you can go if you're interested in, and she helps publish a small story about your life, if that's what you're doing, to kind of increase your legacy sharing. So ultimately, I hope I've helped to show you that increasing social connections can actually be protective to your health. There's a wonderful campaign out of New Zealand who talks about what are the five ways of well-being. One of them being giving. How do we give to others or to ourselves? How do we stay active, keep learning, connecting, and taking notice, which means thinking about the smallest things that give you joy. So for me, it's salami and popcorn, so that is my joy. and connecting with my friends, and certainly keep learning. That is what's amazing about being as a physician is that I'm constantly learning and constantly challenging myself. The be active part leaves much to be desired. Um, I'm not there yet, but giving, that's something that I, that I try, and sometimes it's balancing that. Maybe it's that you give too much and need to step back a little bit and give more to yourself. So in summary, um, some take-home points. We need to be intentional about maintaining our relationships, whatever age of the age spectrum we are, whether we're two years old or 102 years old, we need to be mindful of this. Um, I hope I've shown you that social connections can protect our health as much as loneliness and isolation can actually lead to death and, and loss of independence. And then the unanswered questions that we still have is, what is the minimum contact that we need? We know, unfortunately, from terrible situations internationally and nationally that being in social isolation is hugely detrimental to our health. We also know that the reverse of having a million Facebook friends isn't necessarily a connection. So what is the in-between, and what is it for each of us that matters? And what does it mean to have a meaningful relationship? So in summary, um, loneliness and isolation are common and affect our health and longevity. Um, These are distressing things to us and and maybe more distressing than other things we typically talk about in healthcare. So your doctors and providers may be focused on your blood pressure when really you're most worried about the fact that you're lonely. Talking about loneliness is important and we need to encourage our healthcare organizations to actually start to focus on loneliness and isolation. And then lastly, we need to really think about how do we evaluate the programs that are in our communities to say, hey, this works, 
and I want Medicare to pay for me to go have coffee with my friend or whatever it is. So that is my public health light. So with that, we're going to save questions for the end. So take a couple breaths, and I'm going to introduce um, Amber Carroll, who is my colleague. And I think what's really fantastic about this work in, in loneliness and isolation that I didn't realize by writing about this and, and researching, I'd actually meet a whole bunch of new people. So it's really awesome. So I'm increasing my own connections. And I, again, got to meet my colleagues who are visiting from India by this work. And so it's it's opened up a, a huge new world for me, and I'm incredibly grateful. So she's going to tell us about some of the programs in the Bay Area, but that are available around other areas. So with that, go ahead, Amber. Hello, everybody. I am so excited to be here for a couple of reasons. One, I'm thrilled to be here with Dr. Parasinoto. Um, I heard her. I heard of her first by reading an article in the New York Times, and realized she was here in San Francisco. And I called and I said, "We need to meet because I've got this great program I'm doing." And of course, she had known about Well Connected long before I did. So. Um, the other reason I'm really excited to be here is because I'm a huge fan of the OLLI program. And when I first started with Well Connected, I thought, man, these two programs are a match made in heaven. And I hope after I'm done talking, you will all understand that as well. Um, so anyhow, after Carla talked about all that research that's been done around the health impacts of loneliness and social isolation, I'm here to talk about some solutions. And the solutions I'm going to talk about are really simple and really affordable and, in many cases, really fun. So, um, But before I get into that, I want to tell you a little bit about who I am and where I'm from. Um, we passed out a catalog for Well Connected and also our social accountability report for Covia. I work for a company, an organization called Covia. Has anybody ever heard of it? Okay. It's a brand new name, so we actually have only had this name for a few months, but we're an over 50-year-old organization. Um, some of you might know the names um, Episcopal Senior Communities. That's who we were until a few months ago. And um, our wheelhouse is really around social connection in community with everything that we do. So for 50 years, Covia has been serving seniors. And even though we have a new name, we've maintained the same mission for this whole time. And that mission is to promote positive aging by cultivating healthy and engaged communities with a continuum of innovative services that actively support intellectual, physical, emotional, spiritual, and social well-being. And this mission really informs everything that we do. We are not going into this, but I just wanted to give you a sense of what Covia does. And for those of you who live in San Francisco, we're a lot in the world of housing. So we have six life plan communities. If some of you are familiar with San Francisco Towers here in San Francisco, that's one of our communities. We have uh, nine affordable senior housing communities. So you might be familiar with Presidio Gates. Um, here in San, San Francisco and Bethany Center. We also do resident service coordination with other affordable housing providers like Mercy Housing, Bridge Housing. And then we do a bevy of community services, and that's really what I'm here to talk about today. Um, I'm going to go into all of uh, the programs that are available through community services, but I'm going to kind of take a deeper dive into social call and well-connected. 
So Carla mentioned uh, this researcher and, uh, and your colleague out of Utah said a similar thing. But Jan Cacioppo out of the University of Chicago uh, spent his career studying loneliness, and this is what he had to say. We need mutual aided protection. If you're only receiving aid and protection from others, that doesn't satisfy this deeper sense of belonging. Being just a client of a psychotherapist fulfills some needs, but it doesn't fulfill that real need to have a rich reciprocal bond. And I want those words, rich reciprocal bond, that's become kind of my mantra. <laughs> it's, it's really the sweet spot. And when we're in the business of social connection and talking about social connection, that's really what it's all about. It's having a bond. It's not doing something for someone else. It's all about that relationship. And so all of our programs have that in mind with what we do. All of our programs are by and for older adults. Have any of you heard of the creative aging movement? This is kind of a new term. It's not a new thing, but it's a new term. And we're finding a lot of solace in sort of acting in this world of creative aging and looking at all of our programs and really seeing that they all are creative aging solutions to social connections. So um, I'm, again, just going to run through really quickly uh, our community service programs and where they're available. So we have senior resource directors in, um, in these counties up here, and those are really the people who just know stuff. They're the people you call, and they're going to help connect you with what you need. Um, every community throughout the United States has an area agency on aging associated with it who also does that. But these are the folks just within our organization. I always have full assurance that they're going to get people where they need to go to get what they need. And they're also out in the communities really selling these other programs to get people connected to them. A program called Market Day is a senior produce market, and we have about 25 of them throughout California. People over the age of 60 can buy produce at cost at uh, senior centers, affordable senior housing sites, um, churches, places where people congregate. Home Match is a home sharing program. Going back to, it's, uh, we always talk about the housing crisis in San Francisco, but it's really at base about companionship. So we match homeowners with home seekers in a mutually beneficial uh, relationship. Uh, Rotary Home Team, we deploy Rotarians through partnerships with different Rotary teams to go into people's homes to do light fix-it work. Um, but again, it's all about that connection and that visit. And then Social Call and Well Connected are a little unique because all of our programs are available in a lot of counties in California. But Social Call and Well Connected are national programs. So folks can call in from anywhere in the country. So I'm loosely calling these two programs the connection programs. Um, they are programs that aim to engage residents as participants and or volunteers. So this is that rich reciprocal bond that we're talking about. Our programs are all by and for older adults. So these two programs together, Social Call and Well Connected, these are the, way you, the ways you can engage. You can participate in a group activity over the phone or online. You can facilitate one of those activities on the phone or online. You could receive a social visit in person or on the phone, or you could be a friendly visitor to somebody else in person or on the phone. So let's talk more about social call first. And I do want to point out that all these pictures of people are actually real 
people in our program. And I realize Kevalia is mislabeled because she is a well-connected participant, she's a well-connected facilitator, and she's a social call participant as well. That's a, that's a new change for her. Um, so Social Call is a creative aging program of Covia. It's a friendly visitor program. There are friendly visitor programs everywhere that usually involve vetting and training volunteers to visit older adults in their homes. And it's done on a weekly basis or some kind of regular basis. And it's really about making a relationship between those two people. Really based on the work of Silverline out of the UK, we've decided to launch Social Call also as a phone-based program. So it's the same idea of a regular friendly visit, but it allows us to reach people across the country. So it's not just we can provide one-on-one -on -one in person visits in five counties throughout California, but we can reach somebody in rural Arkansas or in Manhattan or anywhere else over the phone. So we're just launching a pilot for that right now, um, and we're hoping to expand it more um, in the very near future, um, but hoping to be able to serve a lot of people doing that. Um, all of these, this program is free to participants. And well-connected. So Carla had this slide up. We, uh, about a few months ago, were called Senior Center Without Walls. We started in 2004, so we just changed the name. I still kind of slip into, into Senior Center Without Walls a little bit. Um, what you have in your hands is our fresh new summer catalog that literally just arrived today. So um, it is really hot off the press. We're also a creative aging program of Covia, and we have phone and computer-based activities, education, friendly conversation, support groups, presentations, again, by and for older adults. All of the activities are accessible online or by phone. All of them are accessible by phone, I should say. Some of them are accessible online. Um, and also, all of the activities are free to participants. So this is just a week in the life of Well Connected. You are all OLLI members. This is very similar. So what we have are classes and activities going on. It's just instead of getting in your car and driving to UCSF, you can do this from home. This is where I see that match made in heaven. I would love to bring some OLLI content to what we're doing. I'll go into talking about this, but I want to just do a little exercise with all of you. Is everyone in the room over the age of 60? I know not everyone in the room is. Most people in the room over the age of 60? Okay. So you can raise your hand to this question or not if you don't want to, but how many of you would consider yourself to be in good to excellent health? Okay, that's great. So let's jump in a time machine. And let's jump to 10 years from now. And if I ask you that same question, if you imagine yourself in 10 years, do you still think you'd report your health to be good to excellent? We certainly all hope <laughs> that we will be able to report that. <laughs> Indeed it is. It is relative. 
things happen as we age. And there's all this great new research about all the great things that happen when we age. But there are also some not so great things that happen. And um, one of the things we see in our program is about 35 to 40 percent of our participants are low vision or blind. About 99 percent of those, it's age-related. So macular degeneration or glaucoma or something like that. And what happens when you lose your vision later in life? We have a woman who, uh, who just joined us. She's from Colorado. She had a brain tumor. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And when she went in to have surgery, one of the side effects was she lost her vision. So she had to prematurely retire and adjust to being a blind person after never having been a blind person. And so she was resourceful, and she was trying to figure out how to, what resources she could use, how to adapt to this. She obviously couldn't drive anymore. She said she was wearing her husband out because he had to drive her everywhere. And then she learned about Well Connected. We have a number of support groups for uh, low vision and blind folks. And she thought, well, this is great. I don't need to have my husband drive me to the support group. And from there, she discovered other programs that she was interested in. And then in this last session, she started facilitating a group herself. Um, So I ask you that question because programs like Ollie are amazing programs. But what happens when you can't go to the programs anymore? My mother attends Ali in, uh, out of the University of Minnesota. And last year, she gave up driving at night. She just wasn't comfortable doing it anymore. And she, and she looks through her Ali schedule, and she's like, man, I can't do that, <laughs> right? So those are the kind of things where sometimes when people hear us talk about these programs that you can access from home, they think that we're encouraging people to stay in. That's not what we're encouraging you to do. It's really just an enhancement. So this is a week in the life of Well Connected. And I just want to point out a couple of things. One, you'll notice it's a seven-day calendar. So as this program was developing, we were talking to folks, and a lot of people, whether they lived in senior housing communities or they lived independently at home or wherever they live, said there's just not a lot that goes on during the weekends. It's kind of boring. And especially in senior housing communities, because people tend to leave and there aren't staff there, so they don't have activities planned. So, again, because our programs are by and for our community, we have really rich programming over the weekends. The other thing is the programs in red, those are the groups that are accessible online. We're trying to figure out a technology solution so that everything is accessible by phone or online. Um, We're not quite there yet. It's a little challenging working with tech companies around accessibility. Um, They keep telling us things like, oh, we'll get an Alexa in everyone's house and we'll do this. We're like... Just a phone that doesn't have 27 digits to enter would be great. So, um, so we're working on that solution. But right now, we, we have two solutions that allow us to do all of these things. A lot of the groups that we offer online are, uh, have visuals associated with them. So you'll notice on Wednesday, we have a group called Museums at Home. This was my dream program. We uh, partnered with museums around the country, and they do weekly docent tours for us and some really amazing museums. We just 
solidified a partnership with the MoMA in New York. Um, the Art Institute of Chicago joins us every, uh, every quarter. All of the museums in San Francisco, or most of them, are partnered with us as well. So it's a really amazing way to uh, see exhibits if you don't want to fly across the country to do that. One of our core activities that we just celebrated a 10-year anniversary of is our gratitude group. Another thing we've been hearing a lot of research about is the science of gratitude. Um, We have kind of known this since the inception, and we offer 14 gratitude groups every week. I encourage each and every one of you to try one of these. There's no way to call into a gratitude group without feeling profound gratitude. What we do is everyone is sort of sitting around a virtual table because people are at home on the phone. And we just go around the table, and everyone shares one thing that they're grateful for. Now, some of the folks, uh, we have a, a woman who's been a longtime participant and facilitator And when she first started calling in to gratitude, she would call. She made that effort to call, but she could not, for about six months, find anything to be grateful for. She was in chronic pain. She was miserable. Um, She now facilitates four of our gratitude groups every week. Um, Such is the healing power of gratitude. So... How do you connect and engage with these programs? First is decide how. And that could be you wanted to be a participant in some of these groups. And I should just say, you can participate in one group a year. You could participate in 12 groups a day. It's, it's really what is of interest to you and what works with your schedule. Um, do you want to volunteer? Do you want to participate? We often nurture our, um, our participants because we hear them on the phone and we sort of start to learn stories and know who might be a good, uh, a good facilitator. Um, so figure out if you're interested in participating, interested in volunteering. Um, once you do that, you fill out an application to volunteer or you register to participate, and then we just connect you to whatever you're interested in being connected to. And again, the schedule is really flexible. So to that research that we're supposed to be doing to find out the efficacy of these programs, um, we have never done that. But what we do do is is we administer an annual participant survey. Um, Carla has been great in helping us. We are now starting to administer that UCLA three-question loneliness scale. Um, So we're hoping to find that what we're doing is really working. Um, at this point, these are, this is our data from last year. We're um, receiving data right now for this year. But we asked people about the benefits of participating in Well Connected. And this is what they said. 83% said they felt increased intellectual stimulation. And I have to say that's something that's changed over the course of time. This program was started really with the sole purpose of connecting people. And our groups were a lot more chatty, like coffee chat, things like that. We've really brought in a lot more academic things, so we've seen an increase in people saying they're feeling intellectually stimulated by the programming. 76% that they felt their social connections had increased. 63% said that they felt their mental health improved. And to... (laughs) This money in healthcare uh, being spent for some of these programs, 35% said that their physical health improved. And 
So from what Carla was talking about, that really makes sense. Now, interestingly, healthcare providers are not dumping money on our program. <laughs> We're hoping that they might at some point. But it's, I, I find that to be a really interesting statistic. Um, this is Linny, who I'm also going to reference, uh, is 93 years old. Um, she has been a longtime facilitator and participant. She was our first gratitude facilitator. Um, she was just diagnosed with a terminal illness and is in hospice. So this last session, she decided to facilitate a group called Living Through Dying, which was really to share her experience and provide a platform for other people to talk about their experiences of, of going through this aging process and, and dying. Um, beautiful, beautiful group. I was looking at how many people attended in our first group. I don't even know how this happened because we have a 25-people limit. There were 27 people <laughs> on, on her call, um, and she's such a gifted facilitator that she can handle 27 people on the phone. So what can you do? This goes to what Carla was saying. Talk about this. This is exciting. When we used to do presentations to older adults, we didn't talk about loneliness. <laughs> And it really was through this connection that it's okay to talk about it. Let's remove the shame. Let's have that conversation. Um, and again, the flip side about that is, is social engagement and, connection, and connectedness. Um, join us. Join us for a call. You can try it out just to see if you like it or register and join us anytime you like. Um, if you are in any kind of uh, senior housing facility, um, Community, we would uh, we've been launching this. If folks want to plug into one of our online groups and join us for a museum tour, we're happy to accommodate that. If you think of fun ways you'd like to partner with us, we are always about creative ways of doing that and open for any kind of conversation. And then I do want to point out this creative aging symposium was something we decided to try for the first time last January and are deciding to make it a national event. And that, and that was one where we really tried to engage not only individuals in their homes, but also communities of people. So senior housing communities, libraries, senior centers, things like that. Um, it was all around creative advocacy last year. Um, and I can't say it yet, but we have some killer speakers lined up for, uh, for January. So January 19th, uh, we would love for you to join us. And there's actually, put it in your calendars. And this is shameless self-promotion. <laughs> You'll recognize the woman in the picture. She's a real person, and you just heard her speak. So, uh, Carla, would you like to read your quote? Sure. I will read my quote. <laughs> Um, which is true. It says, um, I have great experiences working with Covia. Um, I've referred my own patients. Um, I was actually a guest speaker on one of the groups um, over the phone, which is actually discussing loneliness. Um, and I've actually seen firsthand what this program can do to address loneliness. Um, what I've said is that really if there's any downsides is that the program needs to be more nationally recognized as a critical loneliness intervention. And the other downside is that it needs funding. <laughs> so, Thanks, Carla. Sure. 
So, um, so I didn't mean for that to sound like a giant sales pitch. Um, this is, in fact, a free program, so I'm not selling anything. Um, but this is really great fun. And I gave you all uh, our, current, uh, our current catalog, so please feel free to look through it um, when we get to questions. And I think we're getting to questions in, in just a second here. Um, feel free to ask if you have a question about how any of that works. And... This is just my contact information. So thank you all very much. So the question is, how is WellConnected funded? And for all of our community services, they're predominantly funded by Covia. And what I didn't point out on our chart is we also have a foundation that raises money for us. And our life plan communities help fund our programs. We also get grant funding whenever possible. So here in San Francisco, the amazing Meta Fund is supporting us for outreach in, in San Francisco and connecting folks. And we just secured a grant with uh, the city of Beverly Hills to, uh, to connect more folks down there. Um, so the question is really about the studies that were presented in terms of the health effects of loneliness and whether they're correlational or causal um, and, and whether the, um, the effects are really due to the stresses and the inflammation of isolation. So, um, and if there's any studies to look at people who are isolated and not stressed and vice versa. So, so the answer is um, that, yes, they are absolutely um, correlatory. Causation is incredibly difficult to, to prove, especially with a concept like uh, loneliness loneliness and isolation, which is multifactorial. Um, the theories behind and the research looking at people who are loneliness and on the effects of the body are exactly as you say, that they are certainly the thought of the distress and the inflammation and the, the heightened um, immune response or lack of immune response or, or autonomic response. Um, so that is true. What is interesting is, no, I don't know of any studies really taking out stress. I think that that is some of the difference between when we look at loneliness versus isolation by itself because loneliness again being subjective and, and seen as something negative and distressing rather than being solitary which is you know where you may be it may be a choice in something positive so it's kind of intrinsic in the in the definition of loneliness that it is stressful and distressing and hence that's why the the relationship so, so the question is, is um, you know, if loneliness can be psychologically rooted um, um, and whether it's hard to identify. So I think that is a, that is a very good question. And um, as I mentioned earlier, that there's certainly you do not have to be depressed to be lonely, um, and but they, they can coexist. And you're right. So one of the things that as a clinician, when I am assessing, it's really actually one of my when I am checking when I am seeing people, I'm asking. Do you have chest pain? Do you have shortness of breath? And I ask, as part of this, do you feel lonely? And, and I also ask about the depression. And so if there's any other positive things that point me in the direction of another psychiatric or psychological condition, I have to investigate that, absolutely. So, but I think what's interesting there is that we may find people who are we, we're treating effectively for depression, but we aren't addressing their loneliness. And so then we, we're, we're stuck, right? Great question. So the question is, something reduces the risk of death and isn't a death 100% guaranteed? It is. I think it's more thinking it's, it's about premature dying. So, And you're looking at people in similar situations. Would you, would you be dying at the same time or would you be dying at a different time? So, yeah. And many things. I mean, it, it's an interesting question because that is how we look at a lot of health outcomes is mortality risk and when you die. So, <laughs> Yes. 
So one of the questions was was the content of groups, um, and and you were saying you weren't seeing a lot of groups around uh, degenerative d diseases specifically. So that's question number one. And question number two is if somebody is a little hesitant to join, can they talk to somebody at Covia ahead of time? And so I'll answer the second one first, which is absolutely. Um, you can register for the program online or by phone, but I would say probably about 90% of people register by phone. And that provides the opportunity to talk to a live person. We can explain how it works. We can look at what's going to be maybe interesting that you can try. And the real joy here with these groups is if you call and it's not really your cup of tea, all you have to do is hang up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that easy. Um, as far as the content of the groups, our groups are by and for older adults, and some of our we do bring in professional presenters, and um, and some of our support groups are led by peers, and some are led by professionals. But it's really finding the volunteers and the people interested in doing that. I talked to the Parkinson's Association and said the same thing: if folks aren't able to get to because their Parkinson's has progressed to a point that they can't drive to their support group. This would be a really lovely venue to have a support group. Um, so that's, that's just something, if we can find people to do it, the world is our oyster as far as programming goes. It can be absolutely anything. And like I said, we've been getting a lot of um, support from low vision and blind organizations. We work a lot with the American Foundation for the Blind. So what we've seen is an increased number of programs specifically for that. So we're open for any groups if you'd like to lead one. I'm going to add to that question too. That I think what's what's having been a um, a speaker in, in one of these or participant in one of these groups. What was really nice also is that um, you can be a you know quiet participant if you just want to listen. So there's you know, and it may be that that first time it's just seeing what's going on and seeing if it's your cup of tea or hanging up as you said. So there's some some variety. So, so the two comments, and I'll summarize. The first one saying that given the research that has been shown and the data, um, loneliness is, is something that's happening to younger people as well. And shouldn't we, or isn't it the right thing to start thinking about how to address this potential problem in the younger generations by incorporating knowledge and awareness in, in the younger years? Um, and I would say I absolutely agree. Um, I happen to find young people boring, so, <laughs> so I focus on older adults. But um, no, it's um, I say that partly true, partly in jest. But um, they're actually, like recently this year, there was some funding I couldn't apply to because it was actually research on younger adults or younger people with loneliness. So I do think that's absolutely, that's kind of thinking about you know the primary and secondary prevention before it sets in or as it's starting to. It's a huge problem. And at some of the conferences, the shift this year when I've been speaking at events compared to last year, I've had a lot of parents, grandparents, other people really worried about their kids in a way that I haven't seen before. Um, I was also, actually, when my husband and I were in Hawaii recently, it was kind of funny. There was a two parents and the son next to us, and the son told his dad, Dad, your phone is really starting to be a problem, and you need to stop that at the, at the breakfast table. And we were like, whoa. And I was like, good for him for speaking up. Well, I was actually wondering about that data with the iPhone coming in, if it's actually the 
parents who are distracted and not going with their kids. So the question is the iPhone data, is it, is it the parents that aren't going up or is that the kids? So I, you're right. I think this is, it's, it's ripe for investigation and it's ripe for awareness. And it, it, as I mentioned my own story, and again, Julianne Holtstadt, who's researching this, she's trying to think like, I need to build my social capital now and my teenage kids needs to do the same. Um, it is, it is a, it is in the emerging data coming this year, actually, and there's health plan data coming out that's showing it's probably a bigger risk in younger people than older. I think the implications in older people right now, because our ability to bounce back from illness as we get older is, is, is smaller. So if we become lonely, it's a bigger effect, but the actual magnitude is probably bigger for younger people. And then I appreciate the, um, you know, the, the volunteering of your, of your um, support group. I hope they all agree, but this is absolutely, um, it's knowing that this is, this is an international thing that is going on. And I will also add that I work, um, I volunteer in Mexico, um, at a, in a rural community hospital and same thing. I've seen a shift over the last couple of years, Mexico, who happens, which happens to be a country where, um, you know, family and extended family life is, is central to living and you live with your grandparents and your aunts and uncles. And for the first time I've had older adults coming in who are, who are, um, who are abused and isolated because their family has left them alone. So there's these things that are happening that used to never happen that we're seeing for the first time. So the question is, is in, in the, in the data that I mentioned in terms of people who are joining groups, we're seeing improvements in hypertension, um, and in diabetes. And the question is, how did we measure that? And is there equivalent data in terms of what's happening physiologically in people who may or may not be lonely? So two things. So that data is not from me and it's, it's emerging data and it's actually at a group that are partnering with health plans. And so they have access to Medicare claims data and specific health plan data. So they can actually look and say, we have, X number of people, and they have done this, saying we had 100 people who we know their hypertension, like literally their numbers, and they know their hemoglobin A1C, which is our average you know, blood sugar, and they follow them pre when they started this program and post, and they're seeing reductions. And so what's, what's really interesting there is that we're seeing health plans now starting to say, we need to partner with these groups because they are actually, we're seeing a return on investment. So it's fascinating. In the physiological, um, I am not, that's not my area of expertise, but people like Julianne Holt-Lundstadt and Louise Hockley in Chicago, they actually are physically and physiologically measuring some of these stress responses in the lab with people and looking at cortisol levels and a whole bunch of different things that I don't know all the details of to actually show why some of these things are happening. So something such as what Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, it's a very complicated kind of coming back to the question over here. The causality is challenging. I mean, all this is correlatory, but I think it's, it's, it's too much now to ignore, but there's definitely things there, which is why many of the large health plans are working on this. Another large health plan in, um, in Southern California, CareMore, they have a whole campaign around this because they're also seeing, I mean, they're doing the right thing for their patients and are, their patients are enjoying it. And in turn, it's decreasing their healthcare costs. So it's kind of this win-win. So the, the comment there, which is I, I, I really appreciate, you said I'm, I'm retired and I have t- 
time to do things, but I don't want to do anything, which is perfectly valid. I think that there's, and but is there a motivation group to do things? And I would say, you know, it, this is all about choice, and is it distressing to you? Again, there are people who are perfectly happy not doing anything and aren't feeling lonely. The isolation piece, if you're not doing anything and not connecting with people, it's possible that it is affecting your health. And so are there small ways to connect that doesn't mean going to a large party or it's just finding that meaningful connection or that way to, and maybe you still find meaning in whatever you're doing without having to do new things. So the question is, is how does this compare to the village movement? I would say that what's, what's fascinating about the village movements, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, the village movements were started in Boston as a way to help people age in place and to provide community and support. So I would say that the village movement is, is working on exactly this. It's how do you keep people connected and find meaning. So it could be, I mean, I've seen so many great models of this that it's, you know, I'm not feeling well, but my neighbor knows that I go out and water, and if they don't see me watering gar- my garden, and they're going to be worried about me. And today, I may help someone drive to the doctor, and next time they're going to help me. And there's people looking after each other and finding community. So that's how it works. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.